Please take your copy of God's Word. Turn with me this morning to the Gospel of Luke as we continue exploring Luke's account of our Savior. Our passage this morning is a continuation of what we looked at in the text last week. So our focus this morning is verses 8 through 12 in Luke chapter 12. So Luke 12 verses 8 through 12. Follow along there with me as I read. This is Christ speaking, and he says, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Let's pray together. Father God, we confess to you that we are frail and weak creatures in need of the strength of Christ. As we look at the world around us, Lord, we see such great sin. We see, Lord, the church increasingly being attacked in the midst of our culture. We see many supposed leaders in the faith capitulating to secularism, giving up the good confession of Christ in order to get along in this world. We know, Lord, that if Christ does not return and if you do not grant revival and spiritual awakening in our culture, that the young young ones among us even now will face a very different world. They may even soon face persecution for confessing Christ. Whether you have that for us or not, Lord, we pray that you would continue to prepare us as disciples to stand firm, to stand faithfully with Christ, professing the truth, holding to the truth of the gospel, even when it costs us most dearly. And may we do so, Lord, knowing that Christ our King stands for us. Knowing that it is because He has stood for us, because He has made atonement for our sin and now intercedes on our behalf, because He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, that ultimately, Lord, He will see us to the end. He will reward the good confession. He will be glorified. Lead us now in understanding the truth of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, when I was a a younger believer, I remember my pastor from the pulpit asking a very poignant question one Sunday morning. If you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? 
Would your coworkers be called to testify? Your neighbors be called to testify? And would they say, yes, this is a person who obviously loves Christ. I see it in what they speak about. I see it in how they act around others. I see it in how they love one another. I see it in how they live their faith. As we continue in Luke this morning, we're at a time, as I said last week, where things are growing more precarious for Christ and his disciples. We saw at the end of chapter 11 that the religious leaders were now more deliberately watching their every move, looking for a way to trip Jesus up, to discredit him in the eyes of the crowd, to find some excuse to kill him and remove his influence over the masses. And so Jesus and all of his men were under pressure They were under the microscope. And yet they were in this place where Jesus needed to continue to prepare his men, to prepare his disciples to continue taking a strong stand for Christ. And so even in the midst of the demanding crowds, Jesus focused on teaching them. He was teaching them so that they would be able to live unafraid and unashamed as gospel witnesses. Indeed, as leaders of the church, when he ascended, and return to the Father. What follows that last verse of chapter 11, here in the first part of chapter 12, are, are six lessons for disciples on how to be ready to stand for Christ. We covered the first three of those last week. We're to guard the purity of our testimony. We are to fear the king of all righteousness, and we are to know that we are precious to our Lord. This morning, we'll we'll take the second part of this text and look at the next three lessons. And the first one this morning is this. Trust that Jesus will stand up for you. Trust that Jesus will stand up for you. Look there with me in Luke chapter 12 at verse 8. Jesus says, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. You know, as I alluded to in my prayer a moment ago, we do live in a day and a time when Christianity is becoming more and more despised in our nation. Even now in our culture, we face a a mild persecution. And, and, you know, for some people it hasn't been so mild. There, there are people that because of their confession of Christ are threatened with losing their, their medical license. They're threatened with losing their work, their means of employment. Certainly the loss of relationships and other things. And again, if Jesus does not return first or if God does not grant a spiritual awakening in our culture, it is only going to grow. The trajectory is of our culture is to become more and more godless and indeed more anti-Christ. Are we prepared for that? For the questions that will come? Those who hate us will inevitably require us to either openly confess what we believe in order to be scorned and derided publicly, or they will push us to recant what we believe and bend to the will of secularism. How will we respond when we find ourselves at the crucible of that moment? Well, the answer is here. Jesus knew his own disciples would face the crucible of that moment, and so he warns them very clearly. Christ tells them how they had better respond when that time comes. That we as disciples must be prepared to acknowledge him before men. 
Now acknowledge, this is a a Greek term which means to confess. Indeed, in earlier translations, this is, Jesus specifically says, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will also confess before the angels of God. It means to affirm, to agree, to identify with. But it goes beyond merely recognizing a truth to embracing and living that truth. So if we are faithful to identify ourselves with Christ before men, then he will identify himself with us before the Father and in the court of the angels. Conversely, if we deny Christ before men, Christ will also deny us in the heavenly courts. And again, the word deny here means to disavow or refuse. Now this does not mean that those who have sinful lapses have lost all possibility of salvation. We think of one of our Lord's own disciples, right? Peter. Just as Christ prophesied on the night before his death, Jesus told Peter, listen, you are going to deny me three times before the rooster crows, which Peter did. But upon realizing that, Peter also wept bitterly. He was penitent. He later ran to the Lord and was restored by the Lord. And so when Jesus talks about denying him here, he's he's not talking about a stumble, a struggle that a person makes and then repents of and walks in true repentance of, as Peter did, but someone who is a pattern as a life professes one thing with their mouth and yet before men persistently, consistently denies Christ before them. Make no mistake that if we confess Christ in the face of persecution, we do so according to the strength and grace of Christ that's operative within us. This is a fruit of our regeneration. The only way any of us would take a stand for Christ is is because of Christ within us, because he has changed our priorities, because he has given us a new heart, a new hope, a new life to help us realize that this world is not our home, that we are not, not to be in alignment with the world of men and thus forsake being in alignment with the will of God. No, we know that those who do the will of God abide forever. And therefore, it is our joy to stand with and for Jesus Christ. But it is according to the strength and grace which he supplies. And we can also know in those moments that Christ is faithful to forgive and restore and to strengthen should we falter in a trial. But again, it is those who make a pattern of denial, who deny Christ without any sense of remorse or repentance, who are in great peril. Because they are the ones manifesting that for all other ideas that they may have, in reality, they are without Christ. It is these that Jesus speaks of at the day of judgment who will appear before the throne of the Most High God. They will recount their spiritual resumes. Lord, didn't we do this for you? And didn't we do that for you? And and didn't we do all these wonderful things in your name? And Jesus will look at them and say, depart from me for I never knew you. We're to understand, brothers and sisters, that we may be called upon to stand for Christ. And when that time comes, we must be prepared. Some of you are familiar with the tragic illustration of Thomas Cramner. He was one of those during the reign of Bloody Mary that was put on trial for the Christian faith. Remember that question I asked in my introduction? If you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Well, for Thomas Cramner, there was plenty of evidence. He served as the Archbishop of Canterbury in the early 1500s. 
He served Christ and the church faithfully by being at the forefront of the English Reformation. But when Bloody Mary took the, took the throne of England, great persecution arose against the church. Thomas Cramner had two dear friends, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, who were also put on trial for professing the Christian faith, and they were found guilty according to Roman Catholic law. And they were both ordered to be burned at the stake in October of 1555. Cranmer was forced to watch his good friends be burned at the stake. He himself was in a wrestling match with himself. He was a man who believed strongly in Romans 13 that it was the duty of every Christian to obey the monarch over them because they are the powers that are ordained by God having authority over us. He also had a degree of fear in him as a result of watching Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley be burned at the stake. And he made a perilous decision. In early 1556, he caved to Queen Mary's demands and he wrote a letter of submission to the Pope and a letter of submission to Roman Catholic doctrine. Sadly, even with his capitulation, he was still burned at the stake. Queen Mary didn't believe him. And so she determined that he would also be burned at the stake on the 21st of March, 1556. But Cramner repented. And on the day of his death, he openly repudiated the letter he had sent to Rome. He said, as he was tied to the stake, I have sinned in that I signed with my hand what I did not believe with my heart. And when the flames were lit, he said, this hand shall be the first to burn. And when the fire was around his feet, he literally held his hand unwaveringly in the fire until it was charred as a stump. Cranmer knew what we're to know, brothers and sisters. That Christ will stand for all who are His. That Christ will confess before the Father, before the courts of heaven, all those who confess Him if you worry about your own strength, again, sometimes we're, we're proud. We like to think of ourselves, if that were me, I would stand. And I hope that would be true. But I hope you would also realize your own frailty and weakness and know what you are capable of in your flesh. To know that you are not strong apart from the strength of Christ. But I hope you would trust in Him and draw near to Him and understand that as you do look to Christ in faith, you are covered by His blood. As you look to Christ and are in Christ, you have the very life of the Savior pulsing in you by the power of His Holy Spirit. That just as Christ stood before the authorities of His day, openly, faithfully, professing the will of the Father, sharing with all men the way of salvation, never backing away from the truth, I hope you would understand that Christ has done that for you and that even now He mediates for all who are His. That we likewise may have faithfulness to stand as He has stood. The good news, brothers and sisters, is that Christ is faithful even when we are not. You remember the passage that Pastor Jordan read earlier from 2 Timothy 2? 
The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If if we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Isn't that the good news of the gospel right there, brothers and sisters? If we are faithless, even if we fall, even if we fail in the moment, of a weakness of the flesh. Christ is faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Trust that Christ will stand for you as you are his. Rest in his strength. He gives us a second lesson here. Beware of those who blaspheme the Spirit. Beware of those who blaspheme the Spirit. Look at Luke 12, verse 10. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, blasphemy, it it denotes a willful denunciation of God. It is speaking evil of Him, mocking Him, defaming Him. And in the Old Testament, we know that the punishment for blasphemy was, was to be stoned to death. And yet, all sin, even blasphemy, can be forgiven men in accordance with repentance and faith. This was Paul's own testimony. Remember, Paul counted himself as a blasphemer. 1 Timothy 1, verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy. Because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. And so even blasphemy can be forgiven. Blasphemy against Christ. But then Jesus goes on to say, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, how do we understand this? You know, this is the unforgivable sin. This is a question that many of us have when we talk about our faith. How how can there be something that Jesus wouldn't forgive? I mean, he is the Lord of forgiveness, right? And, And if we really stop and pause for a second, we think to ourselves, now, also, this is a little confusing. Why can a person blaspheme Christ and be forgiven, but if they blaspheme the Spirit, they cannot? Isn't Jesus the more primary figure in salvation? Isn't he at least as equal as the Holy Spirit? Well, we must come back to a question of meaning here. To drive meaning and proper interpretation, we must see that the subject being dealt with here is who can be saved and who cannot. We must interpret these verses in light of salvation. So, to blaspheme the Son of Man, to speak a word against Christ, is to reject his person and his claims, to reject the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the fact of the matter is, men and women do this all the time. We know here in a church, we know in our wider culture, that people hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Jesus Christ all the time, and they reject it. They walk away from it. They're like, I don't need this. You know, you need your religion as a crutch. I don't need that. I'm happy the way I am. They go on. They fail to recognize the light. They hear the gospel, but they do not respond. And again, this is all of us in our natural, unregenerate state. In our unregenerate state, apart from Christ, many of us will even mock Christ. However, the good news is that such rejection can be overcome by God's regenerating grace. 
That God can change our hearts to give us a new mind, a new heart, to cause us to be born again, to give us a new will. And that our blasphemy can be forgiven through Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross for blasphemers like Paul, for blasphemers like Sean Merrithew, for blasphemers like you. So how is blaspheming the Spirit, though, different from blaspheming Christ? Well, the Holy Spirit is the member of the Trinity directly responsible for revelation and the regeneration of the human heart. Exposure to the Spirit implies a greater and fuller revelation of the person and power of God. And so blaspheming the Spirit is more than just rejecting the gospel. It is seeing and recognizing the clear work of God and then apostatizing from it. Again, apostasy is the deliberate abandonment or renunciation of that which you see to be true. To say it another way, to blaspheme Christ is a failure to recognize the light which can be forgiven. To blaspheme the Spirit is to deliberately reject the light even after it has been clearly recognized, which is not forgivable. And and to really understand this, you can look in the parallel text in Matthew 12. In Matthew 12, 31 and 32, we see Jesus giving the same word to the Pharisees in that passage. As the religious leaders of the people, the Pharisees had access to the Scriptures more than anyone else, and they knew the Messianic prophecies better than anyone else. Christ manifested before them the unmistakable power of God. Christ healed people. He resurrected people from the dead. He cast out demons left and right. He fed thousands with a couple loaves and fish. He commanded the very forces of nature, and he taught Scripture and applied it more consistently than they ever did. Even Gentiles recognized the authority and power of Christ, and they sought him out and bowed down before him. But as we see in that passage in Matthew 12, the Pharisees, they see and they hear all of that. They were face to face with the undeniable reality of the Messiah, and yet they still chose to ascribe the works of Jesus to Satan. It's not that they didn't know the truth. They knew the truth, and they rejected it. That's the unforgivable sin. It is this apostasy that leads God to withdraw his convicting power of the Spirit, thereby putting people beyond the possibility of repentance and forgiveness. Indeed, Jesus emphasized this fact in Matthew 12, 32, when he said, For whoever shall speak against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Those who blaspheme the Spirit are beyond the pale. And they shall be damned forever. The book of Hebrews has a lot to say about this. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Go to Hebrews 2. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews 2. In Hebrews 2, look at the first three verses. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. Go forward a couple chapters to Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6 says, 
It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Now we know the the perfect example of what Hebrews 6 is speaking of in the person of Judas, right? Judas was a disciple chosen by Jesus. Judas showed all the same fruit and interest as the other disciples did initially. Judas had firsthand exposure to all the miracles of Jesus. He heard with his own ears over and over again the truth of Jesus. For three and a half years, Judas was in the company of our incarnate Lord himself. And yet when it counted, Judas betrayed not only what he said he believed, he betrayed the very Lord who taught it to him. Look at Hebrews 10. Hopefully you're still in Hebrews. Hebrews 10, verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and of a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Brothers and sisters, the book of Hebrews here is describing those who have committed the unforgivable sin. Again, our natural response as believers is to question, how do we, how do we Pastor Sean, reconcile this concept of a man apostatizing himself unto eternal damnation with God's ability to change the sinner's heart of stone? I think the answer to that is just given very simply in 1 John 2.19. They went out from us because they were not really of us. In other words, their apostasy is evidence that they were never objects of God's grace. And like Romans, like those in Romans 1, God has handed them over to suffer the due penalty of their idolatry. Now, why? Why is this an important lesson for us as disciples? Because we need to understand in the course of our Christian life, in the course of our church life, We will encounter those who apostatize. We will encounter those who blaspheme the Spirit. We will encounter those who once gave a good confession and later walk away from it. And we must beware of those persons. It happened to Paul, right? It didn't just happen to Jesus with Judas. It happened to Paul with Demas. Remember, Paul had Demas who was a faithful co-laborer in the gospel. And yet he had to write to the churches and warn them about Demas that Because he loved this present world, he's walked away. Brothers and sisters, we've even grievously seen it among us in the membership and even in the leadership here of Morningview. People that once had such faithful professions of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, turning from it and walking away. Why is this an important lesson for us as disciples? There's a couple reasons. Number one, it reminds us to always keep a guard over our heart. 
to be careful of deception. Every single one of us can be deceived. The heart is wicked above all else. Who can understand it, right? Don't trust your heart. Trust Christ. Christ alone is our salvation. Labor every day to do what it says in Philippians 2, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Don't take it for granted. Don't think that you can show, your, show God your back for months on end and that everything's okay between you and God. It's not. Beware of those who blaspheme the Spirit. Beware of becoming one who blasphemes the Spirit. And secondly, I would say be not discouraged by these things. It is heartbreaking when a friend, when someone near to us renounces and walks away. But do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. God is just bringing to light what was already a reality in darkness. Don't be discouraged. Don't let it make you question your faith or question your Savior. If anything, may it give you greater resolve to love and to live for Christ. Remember, Jesus is the only one who will never fail you. You will fail. Others will fail. Don't even put your faith in me completely. I, I certainly want you to love and, 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 and respect and, and appreciate the authority of, of, that I have as your pastor and the other pastors over you and the other leaders that God has placed in your life. But make no mistake, even the best of men are men at best. Even I could fail you, but Christ will never fail you. Christ will never abandon or forsake you. Even though you stumble, Christ, if you are His, He will pick you up. He will see that you persevere to the end. His grace is sufficient. Don't take that grace for granted. But love Him as you behold the wonder of His grace. And as you love Him, walk faithfully with Him. That takes me to my third point. The third admonition that we see here in the text is to speak what the Holy Spirit teaches you. Speak what the Holy Spirit teaches you. Look at Luke 12, verse 11. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. You know, for, for the disciples, being on trial in a synagogue before their fellow Jews was one thing, but being brought before kings and rulers and governors was wholly another. To be maligned and persecuted, arrested, beaten, imprisoned, and put on trial would be hard, to say the least. It would be natural for men in such situations to struggle with fear and to be anxious about how they were representing Christ and about what they would say before men to point them to the gospel. So Jesus here, knowing the anxiousness of their hearts, seeks to comfort them. He says the Holy Spirit will teach you what you ought to say in that very moment. God himself would give them the words to speak when that time came. And you know, this is a, this is a, a beautiful illustration from the time. In biblical times, one of the teaching techniques of the rabbis was to train their students for public speaking by standing beside them and whispering in their ears, right? The rabbi would stand just right at the shoulder of his student and he would whisper the words that the student was then to speak and proclaim openly. 
before others. It was part of their training. And so the students would first learn to speak forth the words that their master gave them in his whisper. That's a picture of what God will do for us when the time comes. This does not mean that the Holy Spirit would mechanically possess them, you know, violating their human will, taking over their organs of speech, possessing them, if you will, like demons do. No, this is more the doctrine of, of verbal inspiration, where the human mind and heart and will operate freely, consciously, and joyfully in concert with the Holy Spirit who instructs men's hearts, enabling them to speak the whole truth of God passionately and accurately right down to the last syllable. We see this biblically in Acts 7, right? Stephen, Stephen was just a layman. Just the chapter before, Stephen was elected to be just a deacon in the church just to make sure widows get fe got fed. And then Stephen became just a preacher of righteousness. And the next thing you know, in Acts chapter 7, uh, I'm sorry, Stephen, not Peter, Stephen is arrested. He's called to account before the Jewish Sanhedrin. And what does Stephen begin to do? From memory, he goes back to the book of Exodus and begins preaching the gospel to these Jewish leaders to show them how Jesus Christ is the Savior, how Jesus Christ is everything. God gave Stephen the exact words he needed to speak. And the Jewish leaders were enraged and they killed him and God welcomed him home. God promises all of his children that he will give us the words to speak when that time comes. Don't be anxious. Trust him. Be a student of the word, right? God's word is his revelation, and as we saturate our minds and our hearts, this is the very truth that God will bring to mind. And make no mistake, brothers and sisters, we are made by God's design to be those who bear testimony to his saving gospel. More than ever, we live in the midst of a world that is, that is wandering, that is getting so far from not only biblical truth, we live in a world that is abandoning basic principles of morality. More than ever, the Christian voice is needed. And it's not like any of us are going to be professing our faith before governors and stadiums full of people. No, brothers and sisters, where we will find ourselves most often making the difference is in that one-on-one -on -one conversation with a fellow student, fellow coworker, a neighbor, someone we encounter along the way. Wherever we may be, though, whatever we may do, let us not be found to be silent before a world that so desperately needs the gospel. As I said with my introduction, may we stand for Christ, knowing that Christ stands for us indeed it's because christ stands that we are able to stand it's all him and he never stops standing for his children you know i mentioned in earlier in my illustration from the history thomas cramner about hugh latimer and nicholas ridley again hugh latimer when he was put on trial for his faith he made, made it clear in no uncertain terms with every reply that the Protestant understanding of the gospel was the truth, that man is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. And he would not surrender the point. Those who put him on trial from the Roman Catholic Church, they understood. This is a debate about the very message of salvation itself, about which souls will be damned and which ones will be saved. 
And they believe the Roman Catholic doctrine that it's faith plus works was the truth. And therefore, they declared Hugh Latimer a heretic and he was to be burned at the stake. They pronounced that sentence upon him. And listen to what Hugh Latimer said when that sentence was pronounced against him. He said, I thank God most heartily that he has prolonged my life to this end, that I may in this case glorify God by this kind of death. And when he, on the day that they were burned at the stake in October of 1555, when he was tied up to the stake next to Nicholas Ridley, he looked over at Ridley and he said, Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Brothers and sisters, may that be us. May we live well. May we die well. Knowing that Christ is all in all. Your discipleship is not a game. It's nothing to be taken lightly. Christ gave his life to make you his child, and he has risen from the dead to give you hope and a future and all more than you could possibly imagine. Love him. And as you love him, live for him. Confess him. Show yourself a man approved a woman approved, a young person approved before the throne of God above as you are covered by the blood of Christ himself.